friends, welcome to episode two of Cantori Plus One. This is fantastic. I uh, definitely appreciate the support. Got a great response with our first episode. Thanks again to Tony Hawk. We'll be launching the website soon here. Otherwise, I uh, want to also thank some of our sponsors. You know me, man. I love to eat. Just check out that waistline as I slap my fat ass and grab my man boobs. Uh, I want to thank Oscars Mexican Seafood. Locations in PB, two of them, one on Turquoise and North PB, and the other one off of Emerald and Mission. You can also find them in OB on Newport, throwing down some of the best, whoo-wee, tacos I have ever had in my life. Seriously, as addictive, I don't know, as Breaking Bad. They're amazing. Breaking tacos, spicy shrimp, surf and turf over at Oscars. Love Juan and the crew down there. Also want to thank... And other food-related news, freshandfitmeals.com. If you're looking to trim down that waistline around the holidays, after the holidays, you got to check out freshandfitmeals.com. Seriously, these guys are legit. It's kind of like, um, what's the uh, what's the food service you use, <laughs> Jannard, when you're trying to drop a few? What are you... You doing Jenny Craig or what are you doing? Oh, I ain't doing anything. Dude. I'm just dropping the pounds. You're now. just dropping them, please. Dropping I see them, you freezing. Dro- dropping those the pounds, frozen man. meals, dude. Pack fresh with. And, uh, what is it? What fresh is and it? Easy mid cuisine. Is it fresh and easy? Fresh easy. And easy no, cuisine. you got to go fresh and fit, bro. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's fresh food delivered to you at the gym, your home, your workplace. It rules, man. Just good meals, good food. It's all fresh, organic. You don't have to deal with all those preservatives and freezing that crap. Get off that stuff and jump on the board or jump on the train with uh, freshandfitmeals.com. And uh, who does our um, our intro music? Oh, Neighbors to the North. Is this a uh, San Diego band? San Diego band, yeah. I dig it, man. Yeah. It's working. Thank you to Neighbors to the North for throwing down the music here on the show. Do hope you're well. We're, uh, we're kind of creeping in on the Thanksgiving holiday, all the holidays in general. I'm really looking forward to, uh, well, actually the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas because my sister Carrie, who's in her late 30s, is getting married. Finally! I shouldn't say that in case she listens. But, uh, yeah, this is a good thing. My sister uh, deserves to be happy. She's got a good dude. And the best part of this wedding is that it's happening on the north shore of Oahu, during the triple crown of surfing i mean hopefully the waves are going to be firing while we're out there i'll get to watch my sister tie the knot my daughter's going to play a little uh play a little she's going to be a flower girl and my son's going to be the ring bearer at this wedding and in between the festivities and the ceremonies i'm hoping to check out the surf contest which would be as amazing as that coffee cup you're drinking out of Gennard. what is the deal with that man it's a nice little coffee cup holy shit this is a trip is this really a lens? Yeah, yeah it's a lens. A lens? Yes, yeah, a coffee cup made out of a lens. lens Who cap. made this? I don't know. Amber picked it up for me. Are you kidding? No. I mean, this looks like a... This is a bona fide lens. That's what? It's been recycled? It's a camera lens that's a coffee cup. Dude, seriously? It's tight, right? Or is it made to look like made one? Made to look like Okay, one. because this looks so it. real, yeah, dude. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. When you walked into my office, I really just thought you were carrying around a camera lens. That's good shit, dude. 
Put that on seriously. If you if you've got a friend who's into photography or shooting video, throw that down on the Christmas list. Just Google camera lens coffee cup. All right. I'd like to take that out with me to Hawaii, man. Some of that Kona coffee out there. Come on. So we sat down with Kenny Weisberg. I've known Kenny over the years. He's a radio host. He used to book Humphreys, all the concerts down at Humphreys, and now he's a. Uh, I was going to say best-selling, but uh, this book just hit the market. It's called Off My Rocker. It's a new book from Kenny Weisberg, and I got to sit down with Kenny for a good good chat, man. We talked about everything, his career, getting into radio, our tenure together over at 91X, and how this book came about. Let's check it out. How much of the book have you read? Anything? I've uh, gotten through. I've powered through certain. Se- I'm reading it in pieces, okay. to be honest with you, because I knew that I was talking to you, and I didn't want to come in here blind. But I have actually some, and I've written down a couple of questions about the book. But before we get to the book, uh, let me start by asking you. Everyone, I think, especially we have similar paths when you look at our experiences in radio and with live music. Granted, you booked for Humphreys for many years, and I don't have any booking experience. But we all, in the back of our heads, I think, think we have great stories to tell. And, oh, I'd love to write a book. And it's never come to fruition for me, but you actually went out and you did this. And how did this all start for you? Well, back uh, in 2005, when I had been at Humphreys uh, for, I don't know, about 20 plus years already, uh, I was kind of on my way out. And I was always wondering, well, when I leave Humphreys, which is kind of the golden goose in my life, I I asked myself, what am I going to do? Right. And my mother was dying in 2005, and she never liked any of my chosen paths in life. She didn't Seriously. like it when I was a musician. She didn't really approve of it when I got into radio. Mostly Even when because, you got the success part, because that was, my parents were the same way, but yeah. once I achieved some level of success, at least in their minds, they, I got their blessing. I felt like I finally won them over. You never got that from well, your mom? I, I did in, in when Humphreys became a success. They, okay. they, they never understood rock and roll, let's put it that way. And, and I, I was uh, bitten by the rock and roll bug when I was seven years old. That's like me. And uh, and they never understood it. Uh, when I went away to college, for instance, I had a huge record collection and I played guitar. And they almost didn't let me take my record collection or guitar. Really? And, and, and then they made me pick one versus the other and I took the record collection. <laughs> and I gave up playing guitar for a long time and didn't get back to it for about another 15 years. Uh, but so they were a little bit disgruntled by my love of rock and roll. Right. Uh, yes, at Humphreys, uh, they were more accepting of it. But my mother always liked my writing. Okay. I, I was a journalist in Colorado and I used to send them my clippings. And she used to say, you know, you shouldn't be in this music business. You should be writing a sitcom. <laughs> really? A sitcom? <laughs> yes, a sitcom. That was her idea of, of making it to the mountaintop. Like what, Laverne and Shirley or yeah, I Love Lucy? Yeah, or I, what, what did mom like? All I, in the family? I, I, well, she definitely loved I Love Lucy. Okay. And uh, she she saw me. This is pre-Seinfeld. She was wanting me to, to right. become Seinfeld. You know, <laughs> even though she didn't know who, who that was and he didn't exist yet. Right. That's what she wanted me to do. Uh, so when I didn't do that, she kept hocking me, which is a Jewish term, you know, <laughs> uh, to, uh, to write a book. 
And I kept going, yeah, I'm going to one of these days, one of these days. And in 2005, she was very lucid toward the end of her life, but her body was wasting away. And I went back to New Jersey to spend time with her. And she literally, on her deathbed, she said to me, when are you going to write your book? Really? Yes. And that was, I think those were the last words she said to me before going into a coma. And she no died. No way. She knew she was dying. She died a few years later, a few, few days later. And uh, I actually went home from that visit, that was in 2005, and started writing the book kind of like a week later. That's amazing. And uh, so I, I, I worked on it my last two years at Humphreys, 2005, 2006. I hope but you I, dedicated it to your mom. Uh, she's in the acknowledgments, okay, okay. for sure. I dedicated <laughs> it to my wife. Uh, who's been with me for 41 years and also... Yeah, uh, she's really had to put uh, up with you. <laughs> <laughs> Questioned my career choices on several occasions. Yeah, no, I get she, that at home, too. She's an artist, so she's more understanding. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so um, I, I started writing the book half-heartedly because I was still full-time concert promoter, and I was also doing radio. Right. I was doing a lot of side projects as well. And when I stopped working at Humphreys and then got fired by 91X. And I remember the, that. The purge of 2007. Yeah, that was a crazy time. <laughs> that was my year, two, yeah. end of 2007, yeah. right, right before the rece I, recession. I, I beat you out the door by yes, several months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I started working on it in earnest in 2007. And then there were some people that really got behind me and said, you know, I, I want to take this to William Morris. I want to take it to Sterling Lord in New York, all, all these major agencies. Now, why do you feel that you had a story, though? Because that's always been my thing. It's like, look, I'm not Adam Carolla. I'm not Dr. Drew. I'm not a national talent. Who's going to want to hear from some Jamoke in San Diego? You know, uh, that's what the agencies that rejected me said. <laughs> they, Sorry. They, no, no, it's, it's, it's true. And, and you're, you're not wrong to, uh, to ask that question. Um, uh, the, the agencies that rejected me said, great stories, great writing, but no one knows who you are. In fact, they even investigated, what, what's Humphreys? And they, you know, yeah. the people in L.A. and, and New they York. They Google searched you, checked yeah. your Twitter feed, your Instagram. <laughs> How many followers does Kenny have? <laughs> well, this was even all before those things became in vogue. But, um, uh, and they, they determined that they couldn't sell books based on uh, me being an unknown. Right. So then I, I, I really had to uh, draw it within. I, I mean, I did have stories to tell. Uh, and I, I you know, looked within and said, okay, I'm not doing anything else anyway. And I had made the determination at that point that I was never going to work for anyone again. So I, I, I could write the truth without worrying about burning good for you and, man and uh, so i sat down uh, and, and God started bless you. <laughs> <laughs> i want to do that you're much younger than i am yeah, though i you, still got you, little kids yeah but when they're out of the house <laughs> look out you'll have to go over all of it with your kids which, <laughs> which i had to do by the way um uh, before i published this uh so i i really sat down and and i wrote a book sent it out to several people um and and then in 2008, uh, when I th was on the verge of really shopping it hard, um, uh, my father started dying. You know, uh, he uh, my mother preceded him in death by about five years. Okay. But I, so I had to start going back and forth to the East Coast uh, maybe 16 times uh, over a three-year period. And I spent, you know, my father's last days wow. with him. And he actually read the first draft of the manuscript before, really? before oh, he died. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, and he said, 
it's not going to be a bestseller, but you're a good writer. <laughs> so both, both <laughs> Thanks, my, Dad. Both my parents busted my balls until the very end. And, and That's I, awesome. I, I had a great relationship That's with both fantastic. of them. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, again, I gave up on the... I, uh, the first time I gave up on the book was when the major agencies rejected it, saying that I was unknown. The second time was when I was taking care of my father, and I went three years without writing a word. Uh, and then in 2011, uh, a friend, the worst thing that you can ask a writer, by the way, is how's the book going? Yeah, oh, Because yeah. it goes, it takes forever to write a book. Yeah. And so everyone asked me that, and my, my answer was finally was, I've given up on it. Really? Yeah. And, and I had. I, I, just it was, based on the rejections from the agencies just, or I, I sort dad's of, assessment? No, <laughs> n not, not my dad's assessment so much as the fact that I started, uh, I'm sort of an oy oy oy, you know, neur neurotic Woody Allen type Jew from the East Coast. And I'm an Italian. We're not too yeah. far apart. I, yeah, un I understand. Self-esteem has not always been my strong suit. but Same I, on this end. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I, I gave up on it. But this writer friend of mine uh, named G. Brown, who was the Denver Post rock critic for 26 years, uh, and and I, I, he was, I was sort of a, no, he was a protege of mine. I was his first editor back in the mid-70s. And oh, he, wow. he went on to a really great career as a writer. And when I told him I had given up on it, he said, I'm not going to let that happen. And, and I said, well, okay, but I'm, I've stopped sending it out. He said, I have a publisher for you. And it's this young, bolder publisher named Sandra Jonas who was looking for manuscripts aggressively. I sent her mine. She loved it. She said, you have to finish this book. So between their encouragement back in 2011, uh, I sort of powered to the finish line and finished a book. That's I, fantastic. Yeah. So it's an eight-year process. Yeah. It, in my case, yes. I don't think the second book, if there is going to be one, will take that long. But the first one, because of circumstance, uh, the fact that I was working full time, the fact that both parents were sort of on their way out, um, I... Uh, it, it took a long time, and plus I gave up on it. So th th there were three years that it was literally in a, uh, the manuscript was in a box on the floor under my desk, and when I finally went to pull out the physical manuscript, there were all these silverfish crawling. Oh, no. <laughs> How's this for a sound effect? Like, yeah, Can that's you... great. Like what you see behind the couch when you pull the couch <laughs> yes. from, yeah, from the wall, and yes. you're like, oh. I don't, I don't know if they're totally indigenous to San Diego, but they were crawling all over. The, they love to, they love paper. Yeah. They, they live in books, and and so they were literally living in my book, and I said, oh, God, this that's is disgusting. disgusting. <laughs> and so anyway. But proving how long it's been, in, obviously, in this yeah, box, yeah, and it, you had it, it stepped away from it. a real metaphor for uh, you know the, the lethargy and the, the fact that I had uh, given up on it. So I I thought that I had it finished about a year ago, and uh, but I was working with a, a wonderful editor publisher Sandra, but she's very meticulous and she kept saying no this isn't quite done and she really made the helped me make the book stronger because I'm a rock and roll guy, I'm a first draft guy. When I was a, a journalist in Colorado for 12 years. 
I think everything I ever handed in was a first draft. I'm the same way. That's so interesting. I wonder if it's related to even the DJ background, where when that light is hot, you have to perform, and there's no going back and correcting errors. It's just you're on, and you have to be on, and you're just literally hanging out there by your balls in a lot of cases. Yeah, it it is a lot like that. Plus, I think I had lazy editors when I was a journalist, and uh, writing for a daily newspaper was different uh, than writing a book. Right. And so Sandra is a meticulous editor, and she made me uh, rewrite a lot of the book. I finally learned what a dangling modifier is. She said there were, <laughs> there were way too many dangling modifiers. Wow, in I haven't heard book. that since college. <laughs> dangling modifier. Yes. What is a dangling modifier? Yeah, I, I forget. I, I can't even define yeah. what it is, but, but apparently I was prone to them. Yeah, and, I remember and, that. And Sandra got rid of them for me. And uh, at, at one point, I, I said, is this book ever going to be finished? But finally, you know, we finished it. Uh, Sandra, who's the publisher, also designed the cover. I mean, it's a, you can't see it on, on the podcast. It's but fantastic. It's a, a great cover, isn't it's it? It's fantastic. I mean, and it's know, a and great read. It's, a, as they say, page turner. We finally finished it. It, it came out in late September. Um, it's called Off My Rocker. Uh, one man's tasty, twisted, star-studded quest for everlasting music. And the book is pretty much about a lifetime devoted to the joys and pain of, of music. I yeah. mean, I, as I said earlier, I, uh, the rock and roll bug bit me really early in Yeah, where in were you life. living? So you from back east Yeah, I, I'm from South Orange, New Jersey. Okay. So I grew up uh, in the heyday, the glory days of uh, New York AM radio. Oh, wow. Uh, there was Murray the K. There was uh, people that you've probably heard of, Chris, in, in your life. Yeah. Uh, but they, I actually listened to you these lived guys. It. I've heard up. of them. You lived it. Alan Freed, Peter Tripp, yep. Scott Muni. Yep. Uh, then later on, Jonathan Schwartz, Pete Fornatal, all these incredible voices that uh, were freeform radio disc jockeys. So you could hear the singing nun one minute and Wilson Pickett the next minute. And, and, Crazy. and, and uh, it, even Top 40 radio was so adventurous, even though it was Top 40 and it was a limited playlist. Uh, you know, hearing Louis Armstrong one minute, the Beatles the next minute, Dean yeah. Martin the next minute, I, it was just I love amazing. That. So it really seeped into me. And uh, at age eight, even, I announced to my parents that I was going to be a disc jockey. Really? See, that's, and I think we talked about this when I first talked to you about the book, that I have distinct memories as a kid pretending to be a DJ and recording breaks in a, in a cassette recorder with my friends, interviewing my friends, doing radio shows, introducing songs, back-selling songs when I was eight, nine years old. Same thing. And look what happened to both of us. Yeah, unemployed for two years, lost my house. It was awesome. <laughs> I, I, my starting salary in radio at age 23 was $1.60 an hour. I was five bucks an hour. Well, see? I you, was five bucks an hour. You were a success. Yeah, <laughs> I was killing it. Yeah. So, so you grew up on the East Coast. You obviously fell in love, and you were consuming a lot of radio. And did you go to college back there? Or? No, I, I actually I, uh, started moving west in thousands mile increments. I moved from New Jersey. I went to college at the University of Wisconsin in Madison okay. uh, from 1966 to 1970. Okay. And then I ended up in Boulder, Colorado the following year and stayed there for 12 years. And the way that I got my first radio job was just I was listening to this station, KRNW, which was 97.3 FM, underground freeform radio in, in 1971. 
I fell in love with the station. I met the morning guy. Could have been Cantori years <laughs> later, but I, that's I met, how I got in. I actually <laughs> met the morning guy, and I answered their phones for five bucks an hour. Well, well I, I asked the morning guy. I said I would kill to be a DJ on this station, and he said to me, "Well, how much experience do you have?" I said, well, four years of college radio, and then I lived in Santa Barbara, you know, in 70 and 71, and I volunteered for their campus station. So five years. He said, that's, that's more experience than any of the substitutes have. Let me put you on the list. Wow. And the truth of the matter was I had never been on the inside of a radio station in my life. So you completely lied. I completely oh, made it brilliant. up. Uh, well, you know, I don't. I got my job at 91X by lying. That's another story, but it happens a lot in this I, industry. Well, after after this uh, podcast, we'll sit down and... Uh, another time, <laughs> over a beer. Yeah, so uh, anyway, he went to the owner of the station, because uh, his name was Jason, and he was leaving to move to Denver to be in Denver radio. And he went to the owner of the station and said, Kenny Weisberg has more experience than any of the other 12 substitutes. Oh, hilarious. Sh you should put him right to the top of the pile. I write about this in the book. And I, I don't encourage kids to go about getting their jobs this way. But uh, uh, People lie on resumes all yeah, the time. Yeah, well, you know, all the college, the people that say they're Harvard PhDs. And right. They've never been to college. I had never been inside of a radio station. So I got the call one Saturday afternoon to come in and fill in and substitute. And uh, the owner of the station, uh, who was like 48 years old, I was 23 at the time, he said, didn't anyone tell you you're, you were supposed to be on the air? Uh, and I said, no. And uh, he went down to the station and he said, you, your show started 10 minutes ago, get down here. <laughs> so I go down there. Again, I, 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 by this time I had hung out at the station a little while. But I didn't know how to cue records up. I didn't know how to thread reel-to-reel -to, -reel to run the spots on reel-to-reel. -reel. Right. I didn't know what the first pot was for, the second pot was for. I didn't know what a headphone jack was. And he said, do you know what this, 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 and this is? And I said, yeah, no problem. And then he left, and I had to take over and do my first six-hour shift without ever having queued up a record, without ever having spoken into a microphone. Now, do they have program music at this point, no, or are you programming the music? Form, there, it was a, there were 10,000 vinyl LPs on the wall. Oh, but I, I didn't have any time to prepare for this show. So you're just pulling crap off the oh, wall. Well, the, the, <laughs> he, had, he had left the, his show. He was tracking a Tom Paxton album, you know, oh, Greenwich Village Tom Folky Paxton. from the yeah, 60s. Yeah, of course. And so I said, okay, Tom Paxton, Tom Paxton. Okay, let me get Bob Dylan. So the first song I ever played on the radio was Stuck Inside of Mobile uh, uh, with the Memphis Blues again. And then I, did, you know, say, I said, okay, I need to buy more time. So I played Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, which is... 11 minutes and 19 seconds, so I had time to figure out how to work the equipment. Uh, right. The phones were ringing, I had to pick up, you know, there were no receptionists in those days, so you were answering your own phones. Cueing um, records, cutting tape, pop it on. So somehow I got through that first shift, the feedback back to the owner of the station was good. My friend Jason quit the morning show two weeks later to move to Denver, and all of a sudden, two weeks after my very first radio show, I was doing morning drive in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, that is fantastic. And, and it led to like 36 years on, on and off uh, on the radio. Fantastic so. and eerie, because I mentioned my first gig was answering phones for a morning show for five bucks an hour. Within two weeks, they had me on the radio, and it was an Astra and a union house at the time. So local 
local after rep hears me on the radio and says, you got to join the union. And I went from making five bucks an hour to 35 grand a year, minimum (laughs) union wages. And I was a full time radio broadcaster in two weeks. Well, that is much more more than I ever made in radio in my life. (laughs) I I started, uh, I I was the co-founder of Boulder's public radio station, KGNU, which just celebrated its 35th anniversary. But I was literally in charge of the volunteers that were digging the transmitter site uh, before the station ever signed on. Uh, That was a wonderful experience, but that was my highest paying gig in radio, I was making eleven thousand a year. No way! Are you kidding? <laughs> and and working eighty hours a week and loving every minute. Oh, of, of course, it. you lo- know every minute. My of favorite it. time in radio was literally those first couple of years. I was happier making five bucks an hour those two weeks or however long it was than the last two weeks at ninety one X when I was making crazy money. Or for me at the time, it was. So, uh, how long did you spend in Boulder? I was in Boulder from seventy one to eighty three. Okay, so good and, amount of time there. Yeah, and radio kind of led to everything. Radio. There, there were three newspaper and magazine editors that were fans of my morning radio show. They all called me within a month of each other and said, "You know something? You should be writing. You're you're such a good talker. You should write about this stuff." And so, three newspapers and magazines. All of a sudden, I was a columnist and a record reviewer, and and uh, doing doing it. To, you know, uh, getting re- reviewing uh, the Rolling Stones and Stevie Wonder uh, concert, uh, and and you know, oh, getting third row seats and getting five bucks for a column. And you know, I, I so I you started writing, and then as I was writing articles, I became more and more. Uh, you know, they started sort of as puff pieces. I was just praising everyone that I loved, right. uh, which was fun. But then I started taking the role of critic a little bit more seriously, and I started being critical uh, of some of the bands. And there was a band in Boulder in the 70s that I really liked their first album. They were called Firefall. They you know, had a couple of AM hits. Okay. But the guys in the band, uh, Rick Roberts had been in the Flying Burrito Brothers. Mark Remember Andes them. had been in Spirit. Uh, and Jojo Gunn and um, Michael Clark the drummer had been in the birds the original drummer of the birds and flying burrito brothers and so their second album kind of sucked and I uh, and I wrote yeah trying to root for the home team because they were a bolder band Uh, but I said boy they got lazy with this so Michael Clark sees me on the street and he's, he was an intimidating guy when he was high, and, and, and he was always high. So he grabbed me by the shirt and backed me into the corner and said, I would like to see what you can do. Yeah, if you think you're so great, what could you do on stage? Oh, that is hilarious. And at that point, I said, you know something? I told you my, my mother wouldn't let me take my guitar to college, but I had always still played guitar. So because of Michael Clark daring me to see what I could do on stage, I put together my first band. And uh, the, the first guy to join the band was, Michael, uh, was Mark Andes, the bass player from, from Firefall Spirit and JoJo Gunn. Really? Because he was quitting Firefall. He was looking for, you know... A, 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 you know so this is still, we're in Boulder. We're you're still doing in mornings Boulder. in Boulder. Is, yeah. You're writing, you're a critic, and you're, you're forming a band. Started my first band at age 32. I was going to ask, how old? Yeah, 32 okay. years old. I had never been on stage before, had never sung. So I recruited, Mark Andes asked me if, if I needed a bass player when I told him that I was going to put a band together. I had thought I'd put together a band of 18-year-old kids 
that would take orders from a neophyte like right. myself. <laughs> Instead, I get the best bass player in the world. I yeah. mean, his work with Spirit, if you listen to their first four albums, is, he's unbelievable. So then I got the best guitar player in Boulder, Sam Broussard, who had played with Jimmy Buffett and Jerry Jeff Walker and yeah. Michael Martin Murphy. So he became the guitar player. Then I got the best drummer in Boulder, the, the best keyboard player. And, and all of a sudden I had an all-star band and I had never sung into a microphone before. Really? So I'm rehearsing with these guys. Uh, Why did they trust you? I had written because you had the radio station. I, I had the, the radio gig. I, <laughs> right. I had written about all of them, and I think they were curious to see if we could pull this off. So Mark Andes and I christened the band Kenny and the Critics because I was the the oh, local that's critic. Hilarious. That was, uh, and and we spell I spelled critics K R I T I X. Thought it would be a one-shot deal. People would come out being very curious to see what would happen. People would come out hoping that I would fail at it. It was so great. Uh, I mean, you know, not necessarily my, my contribution, but the band was so great that I ended up doing it for three and a half years. And what type of music were you guys playing? It was, uh, I, I would describe it as urban rock, kind of okay. Springsteen, Southside Johnny, Gar sure. Garland Jeffries. Uh, it, it was, uh, my, I always used to be embarrassed that I came from New Jersey, but when I fell in love with Bruce Springsteen, all of a sudden I wasn't embarrassed That's about funny. that anymore. I, you know, Bruce Springsteen kind of changed my life in the 70s. It sure. was, you know, I, I think, he, what, what would he be to in your generation, like The Cure? Or who no, would, no, no, I mean, Springsteen was humongous in my house. My dad, hugest Springsteen fan on the planet. I mean, I grew up on Nebraska, let's put it that way. Born to run, obviously. So Springsteen resonated with me in my household, but I mean, my generation it wasn't so much the cure i mean yeah sure we'd love the cure i'd even i'd, I'd go with you too i oh, really okay. would go with you too probably at the end of the day you two was the band that really they were like to me the beatles at that time in the mid early to mid 80s you gotcha. know i'm i'm like yeah. 14 years old they released rattle and hum or i'm sorry they released the unforgettable fire then came joshua tree then came rattle and hum that that bridge right there was an amazing time in my childhood right. and then i left them and then got into more of the uh, Depeche Modes, your Cures, your Smiths, even those scenes had already popped, then we really got into that stuff. Boingo, Boingo, Boingo yeah, out of Los yeah. Angeles. So Springs, so you're kind of doing yeah, this doing band this. for three and a half years? Yeah, three and a half years. Uh, personnel changed somewhat because Mark Andes had to move to California. To, he ended up joining Hart. He was in Hart for 10 years. And that, you know, so uh, there was revolving personnel. Um, I, every musician I ever played with was fantastic, and, and uh, at the age of 35, I was still making no money doing radio, writing this, you know, the band. I, it was all uh, for the love of, of music. Of course. And, and the yeah, weed, and I, the I, women. Yeah, and I felt bad. I, I, no, I had been married. I was raising stepchildren by this time, and I was not really the most uh, supportive uh, stepfather. It was all about you, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and and I wasn't. Yeah, you know, I was paying rent to my wife, who uh, had owned the house from, uh, you know, her divorce settlement that had happened. And I was literally paying my wife rent to to live in the house. Wow. And I I started saying to myself, you know, something. I need to make a living somehow. Going back to radio, one of my earliest fans on the radio, dating back to 1971 
started bought, bought a concert company in, in San Diego that was failing. I, I won't go into the names because I, I talk about these people in the book. Sure. Uh, and I, I changed the names because it was such a dysfunctional company. So he, he called me in Boulder, and I was just getting ready to you know go on a tour of the ski resorts in 1983. Right, we're playing and, at Vail, uh, yeah, Aspen, Vail, Copper, Aspen, yeah, Breckenridge. Breckenridge, yeah. <laughs> I snowboarded them all. Yeah, and, and we, were, we had a whole summer, uh, a whole winter of gigs lined up, and, and I was excited about that. But then this friend flew me to San Diego, and uh, he said, I want you to watch my investment i want you to work for this concert company so leave radio leave radio leave, leave the band, right, yeah, leave boulder right uh, and and i i was ready for a career change but i never really held concert promoters in high regard yeah. I mean, they they all are in it for the bottom line only not all but most of them and i just i, I met the people that i ended up working with out here i oh you know these people are kind of weird yeah um but I, I took a leap of faith and did it anyway. And what I write about in Off My Rocker is the first day that I moved out here, my friend had a checkered pass that was, but he was going legit. He had had problems with uh, you know drug dealing in the 70s. He had made a lot of money. He got busted. He went to jail. He got out of jail. He went legit. So he calls me. Or up he went into the music business, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he called that legit, but no, I got gotcha. you. He, he was really, yeah, for a while, he actually he managed the church. Uh, you know, really? Out of Australia. Oh, yeah, he's so love he, the church. Yeah, he was going, you know, uh, one of my first jobs was driving the church around San Diego to go to radio interviews. So that, that was That's fun. That's funny. Um, Steve Kilby, Marty Wilson Piper, I still remember those guys like it was yesterday. So, uh, he flies me out. I, I, I agree, you know, for the humongous, you're talking about making 35 grand when you join the union. My starting salary to come out and do Humphreys was 27,000. Oh, wow. And, and that to me was. And what year is this? Early 80s? Uh, 80, 83. Okay. So, so you uproot the entire family, uproot, your wife, well, the stepkids? Yeah, I, uh, the, the stepchildren were about to graduate from, one had graduated from high school, the other was about to. And this was, so instead of the empty nest syndrome, we pulled a reversal and my wife and I moved out here so I could start this job. Okay. And the kids stayed back. One of them was going to Colorado University. The other one was finishing high school. And we left him with, you know, kind of a house sitter. And it was precarious. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, man, here, keys to the house. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're in college. You got a kid in high school. And so I, get, I, I flew out early. Uh, to get the lay of the land, and my, my wife stayed uh, back with. Uh, my, That's what my, my dad did when he stepson. moved us. Yeah, out this way. So I get off the plane in L.A. and my friend, who I was entrusting my whole future with, picks me up uh, at the airport. Uh, we're in L.A. and we were going to go down to San Diego the following week, and we we go. He, uh, we're heading for his place in Malibu, and he said, "I just have to make one stop," and we we stop at this nondescript condo high-rise uh, off of La Cienega, um, and uh, I think it was North Crescent Heights Road or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I know. That. I know that area. And we, we go up. I said, what, what are we doing? He goes, I'm stopping at an investor's house. Knock on the door. Uh, a guy behind the door goes, Quien es? And uh, he goes, it's uh, me, amigo. And the guy opens the door. Magnificent-looking Hispanic man in an Armani suit. Uh, blocks my entrance. He goes, right. who, who, who's this? And yeah, he goes, oh, he's my best friend. 
Long story short, which I write about in detail in the book, I go in and I see these bales of cocaine piled I was going to say, up. man. And, and, and here I am. I had just moved. I was moving my wife out. We were leaving our kids behind. And I'm seeing... And your investor's a coke dealer. 73 keys of coke. I saw f- the scene in Boogie Nights. Is there a guy lighting fireworks in a Speedo? <laughs> that was my first day on the job. It got worse from there, but somehow I ended up you know, doing Humphreys for 23. My friend got out of the business within a couple of years. Oh, really? And I, I, the, the turning point in my life was becoming the in-house promoter at Humphreys. Uh, in 1986, uh, I started working for Richard Bartell, who was yeah, the, the owner of name. yeah, he's the owner of uh, Humphreys Half Moon Inn, and uh, still to this day, to this day, oh, I and didn't realize that still runs Humphreys. Humphreys, I think, now is 31 years old. So wow. I was I was there from year three to year 25. That's amazing. Yeah, and during this run, we, well, you did have your radio show, correct? You had. Um, Music Without Boundaries, which appeared on the air. What stations here in town? Multiple stations, yeah, right? I, I started, it, it started, believe it or not, at KIFM, which is a smooth jazz station. And they, in 1993, I had given up on radio. I never thought I'd be on the radio again. And uh, Bob O'Connor, who was the program director of KIFM, he was losing his, they had a token straight-ahead jazz show on Sunday nights. Uh, run by a guy named Ron Gallen. And Ron was a total Charlie Ming. Like, jazz lovers hated KIFM because right. it was Kenny G. And, exactly. and that was their idea. Smooth of, jazz, of jazz and all that yeah. stuff. Right. And uh, so Ron Gallen, for two hours on Sunday night, played Charles Mingus and, and Charlie Parker and, and uh, uh, Louis Armstrong and, and Wynton Marsalis, straight, you know, more straight ahead stuff to pacify the real jazz lovers. So Bob called me up when he was losing Ron Gallen and said, would you like to take over Ron Gallen's jazz show? And I said, but jazz is not my forte. I right. mean, I like it. I know something about it. But I said, can we do a combination of jazz, world music, rock and roll, folk music, bluegrass, uh, just... And so he goes... What, what, sort of like a music without boundaries type thing? So Bob O'Connor actually... Really? Made, Name the show. I said, exactly. I said, can we give it a try? And, and I said, if the audience doesn't respond, uh, I understand. But I, I can't just go on the radio and play jazz. I, I, I wouldn't be good yeah. at it. So he said, yeah, let's give it a try. And it ended up being on KIFM for three years until someone, you know, his insurance company bought the station and yeah. fired almost everyone, including Bob. I was, <laughs> I was the first person to be let go there as well because I was a specialty <laughs> You're the specialty show. guy. Yeah, Let's get got... rid of the part-timers and specialty guys <laughs> first, then we'll take care of the full-timers. Yeah, so after that, uh, I figured, okay, I had a great three-year run on the radio uh, I, and that was still in the days where you didn't even have MP3s. You sent out cassettes and cover letters yep. in packages to program directors and I had heard about this guy, Mike Halloran, that used to be on 91X in, yep. the, in the heyday of 91X and uh, he had just gone up to this small-powered uh, station called KUPR in Carlsbad. And this is when I started listening to you. Oh, this okay. Is, this is exactly the point. So, And so I, I just on a lark, I had never met Halloran before, and he gets my cassette tape, and, and he puts it on, and I had just 
played a couple of songs, did a couple segues, did some announcing, and I had played Patti Smith, and I, I never knew that Halloran was from Detroit, and he was a huge Patti sure. Smith and Fred Sonic Smith fan, and so he calls me up, and he said, you played Patti Smith? He goes, that's incredible. Can you start this week? <laughs> and, and literally, so I started at KUPR. I love that station that they it, had at it, that it time, great. man. Yeah. I didn't realize it was actually mid-90s. Here I was thinking, because he was at 91X, yeah, you're right, yeah. through the early 90s and the grunge explosion. To 96, and, and then right. you know, he got blown out and or left. I, I don't remember the, the whole circumstance. But he was the kind of guy that really got what I... He didn't love every song that I played, but he really appreciated it and he took me from Sunday nights and put me on Sunday morning from 9 that. to noon yep. which was a, another big step up and I said oh this is great and you know driving up from Point Loma to Carlsbad on Sunday mornings at 8 in the morning and it's gorgeous drive yeah, just a fantastic drive I really loved it 10 weeks later everyone at the station was fired right I remember that <laughs> so I figured okay that's it for music without boundaries that was a fun run <laughs> so but then um a year later, Halloran calls me again. He had moved to L.A. and was moving back to take over 92.5, which had been the Flash, and he was changing it to 92.5. Exactly. He called me up on New Year's Eve and said, I'm on my way back. Uh, can you start this Sunday? Let's get the band back together. <laughs> so I said, absolutely. I figured, oh, this is great. It was, a, you know, uh, Anya Marina was a part-timer yep. at the station back then, and you know they they just had great. They music. did great stuff. My great friend music. Maddie was over there too. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I had a lot of friends over there. Yeah, it was it was great, and I was twice the age of everyone in the room. Right. When I went to my first staff meeting, it was almost like at the ninety one X staff meeting <laughs> yeah. when, I, when I met you. I was twice as old as everyone. I go in, but I I had a certain amount of cred from you know just being a freeform disc jockey and of all of a sudden it's 1997 i'm still playing whatever i want on the radio that was unusual uh so i figured okay 92.5 gonna last forever yeah 31 weeks later another insurance company Boom. swoops in buys it fires everyone that's when radio stations were getting just flipped on a dime every couple of weeks when's the last time you heard of a radio station getting sold no one wants to take those or take on those investments anymore which proves a lot about where the medium is today but at that time mid 90s they were just changing flipping on a dime blowing out staff the whole deal from there um, Halloran was on the verge of going to KPRI and programming that station. Right. And he called me and said, I want you to come with me. And I said, sure, I'll follow you anywhere, Mike. And, and uh, But he didn't take the job, but he recommended me uh, to the owners of KPRI. Yeah. And they hired me, and I ended up staying there for six and a half years, 304 programs. Uh, I was on not only uh, Sunday nights, but I was on Saturday mornings, so they ran the show twice a weekend. I was yeah, having I remember a that great too. time there. It just, you know, they, they were as nice as can be. Uh, and then they hired a new program director. Yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> that's how it goes. And he came in. He didn't get the show at all. And I, again, I know who you're talking about. I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy. Yeah, well, he's, he's no longer he's there. He's not there anymore. He's right. And, and then... Um, they I never are. You know, the people who fuck up your life, they, they, never, they, they never last, man. Know, they I never know. last. They I make know. all these decisions. They turn your world sideways. And then two years, they're out of the market and back they're, in Arizona. Corporate henchmen. Yeah, you know, you're they're, right. They're coming to clean house, 
get the bottom line going up, automate it if possible. You know, it's the, so the less number of people, the better. I, I do write about. You know, I, again, I don't think I'll ever do radio in San Diego again, so I can sort of tell the truth about what went on in those places. I yeah. changed some names. I don't want to humiliate anyone. So some of the names. Yeah, uh, I like how you called the 91X guy that blew both of us out. What do you call the pencil pusher? Pocket or protector. Pocket protector. When, when I met this guy. So I, uh, anyway, uh, Mike Lickenhouse and uh, Kevin Stapleford called me up and they were at, uh, retooling 91X. Right. And they called me up and uh, asked me if I wanted to do the show there. And this is after KPRI. Yeah, right? and they put me on Saturday mornings. Uh, I think you and your wife used to wake up listening yep. and go, what the hell is this? Loved it. <laughs> Loved it. Loved it. Yeah, so I, and I, I really remember going into the first um, staff meeting at 91X. Again, I was, you know, I, I think I was 57 years old at the time, <laughs> and and everyone else was in their 20s and early 30s. Uh, I, I think uh, Mike Lickenhouse was older, but uh, yeah. everyone else was young, and uh, it was just I, I, the, I, the first person I noticed was you walking into the meeting. I said, "Oh, there's a guy. He's six foot five. You were in shorts." Uh, you had great skin art. Uh, you know, all the, you're still on, on your legs. Yeah, I still and, got yeah, it. I, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. That's hysterical. <laughs> what, what was I doing? Just I just walked into the room. Was like, hey, everybody, yeah, or did, I, was I, I part I, of the organization? You, you or? Know, it was a staff meeting, and and I think you had just done your morning shift, and you would you know straggling over at the oh, gotcha. ten in the morning. And, and I mentioned something to you about my wife saying, "What the hell is going on <laughs> on the radio right now?" Yeah, I and think I'm like, you dude, would, that's Kenny. <laughs> you would wake up. I was on Saturday mornings from 7 to 9 yeah. a.m. And I would wake up, uh, you would wake up, and I, I, I played a lot of songs that were not in English, uh, you know, like uh, African music sure. and, and Brazilian music and uh, throat singers of tuva. And so, you know, you're used to hearing certain things on your station. And that's why I was saying, like, The Smiths and The Cure, you know, whatever it was in, in 2007. Yeah. And uh, I, I think you got a, a great kick out of it. I don't know if your wife did. I, no, you know. she did. She did. And I don't, who cares what she thinks? <laughs> she only cares I'm employed. That's all she's concerned about, that I'm bringing home some money for the fam. But, yeah. no, at that time, yeah. I thought it was fantastic because we just got under got out of that stranglehold, a clear right. channel where the station was in the friggin' toilet. It sucked. The morale was in, you know, yeah. the to everything. It was just awful. And then the resurgence of Glick coming in with Stapleford, who today, to this day, is one of my best friends. And I just loved what he did with the station it was, it was when great. he first came in. And I just looked at you as part of the rebirth of 91X. So uh, I always held you in high regards as far as your involvement there. But you were also there during the... Oof, when I things know. got really weird. Well, you really know, weird. I, again, I, I write about this in Off My Rocker, about how people go into commercial radio with really good intentions, but they started paying so much for these stations. I mean, way more than, oh my gosh. than they're worth. And there's no hundreds way. and millions of dollars. Yeah, literally, there's, there's no way you can make that money back. Never. And, you know, but you want to own a radio station. You want to own a cluster of stations. So you go in there and you buy them and then you, you think, OK, well, we have to appeal to the lowest common denominator and to get those and, ratings yeah. up and to get the ad sales. And it's just and today and we talked about this the other day in the hall with 
that's come of the industry since they've switched from diary reporting, which was basically a popularity contest. You know, you write down a name or some call letters. That's who you're listening to. I'll listen to them all day. I'll just write, you know, 91X from 10 a.m. till 5 p.m. Now they have just a handful of people wearing these PPM, personal people meters or whatever they're called. And, uh, the pool is so small that you have mega huge radio stations appealing to two or three people carrying these meters around. They're programming an entire radio station or cluster to a handful of people wearing these friggin' meters. So, Chris, let me turn the interview around. What's the future? What does, it's done. Does, it's done. It's done. So uh, commercial done. radio as we know it is over. And in my opinion, yes. Yeah. Honest. I mean, when you look at what Spotify just got valued at four billion dollars, or you know whatever it was. I just think everything is going on demand digital. It's obviously digital and podcasts and digital streaming has been a huge thing for many years, but as these new generations keep popping up and different the millennials grow up then the next generation that follows the millennials they're not going to be they just want what they want when they want it and they're going to learn everything on on demand demand and streaming and right there for you with no commercial interruption no dj interruption i mean i think that the future radio holds so much at this juncture i think a lot of it is more based on personality and can you build a community around an individual but who who's going to be who's that individual i don't even know anymore you know there used to be days where you used to train new on-air personalities in the overnights or the night shifts and then you get them on in the morning midday and afternoons there's no one in the wings you know you have your dinosaurs that are still holding on but once they're cleared out what's left Right. Nothing. I mean, really, what is left? I have no idea. I mean, I look at 91X operating today without a morning show, and it blows my mind. It's like, just play the music, play the hits, and shut the hell up. How do you build community around that? How do you build passion unless you're just throwing these big concerts and these big promotions where you're giving out iPads every hour? That's my rant for the day. Yeah. Have you weaned yourself, though, of playing music you love on the radio? I mean, uh, do you miss it on a daily basis, or have you gone beyond it? It's a good question. I miss communicating with people. I miss the communication, the broadcasting, and building community around my content. That's what I miss. I had to give up on the music thing a long time ago because I never got to experience it the way you experienced it. I never had a moment in my career where I was able to walk into a studio with a stack of records and play whatever I wanted. I mean, 15, 20 years in the industry, I never had that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Never. And I, and I never did not have that opportunity. Right. I, I, I was hired a couple of times over the years to try and do a format, but I would keep sneaking things in and mm-hmm. I, would, I would get, you know, I'd say, okay, we'll put you back on Sunday nights, do whatever you want. Just, right. You know, forget, it, you, you failed your audition. And I did. I, I, I was not good at that. And I, do you miss it? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly miss music without boundaries. Uh, I didn't at first because I was doing Humphreys full time. I was starting to write this book. At one point, I was managing AJ Croce's career, so that was a. Full, you oh know, wow, I, I, I didn't had realize like that. Three time, three full time jobs going on uh, for for quite a while, and so when I. Uh, uh, when 91X uh, let me go in 2007, I had been doing music without boundaries every weekend for 14 years, 
And I said, you know something, I, I could use some time off just to collect my thoughts. Because even preparing a two or three hour radio show once a week and playing programming it yourself, that takes was time. 10, 12 hours of work. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I love doing it, don't get me wrong, but I was happy not to do it for about the first year or two. But I, I'm such a radio lifer and such a fan of the medium. And I am too, which yeah. is why we're doing this right, right. now at right. the end of here, the day. Here we are, yeah. And uh, so I, uh, I started missing it. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting to see where this multifaceted UT San Diego will go over the next few years because uh, it's obvious that there's content being created uh, more than just in a print media format. Yeah, so, you know. and, but it always comes down to the same thing. How do you monetize? Yeah. It always comes yeah. down to that. But I see a place for you. I can't believe like KPPS hasn't snatched I, you up. That, I, you I, would be perfect I on that. I went to the program director as soon as 91X was over. I went there. And I, I, I think the guy's name is John Decker. I've yeah. never met him. I had met him too. Ironically, I met him too. Yeah, I, I, and I hadn't. I still haven't. But I sent him my information. I sent him, you know, it's now email and and uh, you know MP3s. I sent him stuff. His response was immediately, "This wouldn't appeal to our audience." Crazy. And I, I totally disagree, I said, really? John. Uh, you know, I, uh, he was absolutely. He didn't even grant me an Short-sided. interview. Didn't even Short-sided. give me an interview. So. Short-sighted. Uh, well, I want to mention... when you take over PBS. Yeah. <laughs> keep uh, me in mind. Yeah, I'll put in a good word. A uh, couple of things I wanted to talk about here just regarding the book, and we definitely encourage people, obviously, to pick up Off My Rocker. A uh, couple of stories that I loved in the book. I mentioned that I kind of flew through them, but I wanted you to elaborate a little bit about, uh, or just enough to tease, you know, we don't want to give away the entire book, obviously, right, right. but I love the section about getting extorted by Chuck Berry. I thought that was hysterical. The Miss Pac-Man story, this is all related to you booking at Humphreys. Right. thought that was hysterical. And James Brown refusing to stay at the Half Moon or one of his rooms at the Half Moon because there was carpet involved. So, you could pick your story, uh, Chuck Berry, Miss Pac-Man, or James Brown, when it came to being a concert promoter. Well, the Chuck Berry one, without, uh, I mean, I, that's one of my longer chapters, because here I always wanted to book my heroes. And in, in my early years at Humphreys, I booked Jerry Lee Lewis, I booked Fats Domino, I booked the Everly Brothers, I booked Roy Orbison. I was just going crazy. I bringing, remember, man. Bringing all these people that I loved, whose music was part of my life. And I kept trying to book Chuck Berry. And my agent at the time, William Morris, said, I want to remain your friend. I, for you do not want to book Chuck Berry. <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. He says, no, you don't. And for three years, he refused to let me book Chuck Berry. Then all of a sudden, the agents shifted territories, and I had a new agent. And the new agent said to me, well, what about booking Chuck Berry? I said, I'd love to. Uh, I said, but my friend Peter, my yeah, former for agent, years said, no. said don't, don't do it. He said, oh, no, it's not an issue anymore. Well... It was an issue, <laughs> and uh, uh, with, without giving away the whole chapter, um, Chuck Berry showed up at the gig five minutes before he was supposed to go on. Uh, I thought he was going to be a no-show. I was ready to go up on stage and oh. give, give people their money back, and uh, the front desk clerk at the Half Moon Inn calls me up. Mr. Berry is in the lobby waiting for you. So I, I, I run to the lobby. I said... 
Mr. Barry, hi, I'm Kenny Weisberg, I'm the promoter, and you go on in five minutes, and he pulls out his contract and said, you and I have a real problem. Oh my God. And, and I had crossed out one little detail, and in the small print of the contract, it goes, any alterations of this contract will render it null and void. Right. And so he goes, you see what you did? And I had crossed out 40-minute show and put 60-minute show. That's the only thing I crossed out. And uh, he said, it's going to cost you another 15 grand. To do the extra 20 minutes. Right. And, and so I said, okay, forget it. We walked him toward the stage. Um, I won't tell the rest of the story. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. <laughs> it is absolutely phenomenal. Well, we appreciate you coming by, Kenny. I, I wish you so much success with the book. I went to the Amazon page, accolades. I mean, people are really enjoying it. What's the next stage for you with the book? Are you going to be out there doing book tours, readings, promos? How do we get it to paperback? The whole deal. <laughs> well, it's it's available in hardcover and, and Kindle version right now. Okay. And uh, actually, uh, for an independent independently produced book uh, it was it's a very small publisher in Boulder so you can't really go to your brick and mortar you can order it at your brick and mortar right. bookstore and it'll take a week to get there because it's being distributed but yeah we don't go to those it, anymore it, yeah uh, but amazon.com barnesandnoble.com uh, again you can upload it on Kindle uh, immediately if, if you go there I recommend the hardcover only because I still like turning pages and Me books too. and smelling smelling the pages and uh, the, you know the illustrations are well. The illustrations are on the Kindle. Um, I'm. Uh, I, I really think the book is doing quite well in San Diego, obviously, and it's doing well in Boulder, where I spent a lot of my growing up. Uh, in terms of getting it to New York and L.A. and Chicago and Miami Beach. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, the word of mouth has been terrific so far. I'm very grateful. I, it's exceeded my expectations so far. I didn't know if anyone would read this. The fact that I'm here doing this with you is, is really... It's an amazing story. And, and screw the agents in L.A. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you don't need to be national. You're a big star in my world, Kenny. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I so appreciate your time today. Alright, good stuff. Thank you to our friend Kenny Weisberg for stopping by Cantori Plus One. Don't forget to pick up his book, Perfect Holiday Gift. It's off my rocker. Find it on Amazon, digital form, and uh, the Kindle store there, or on Amazon. You can get the digital version for your Kindle. We got to get them up on iTunes, man. That's where I get all my reads. Alright, Kenny, thanks so much. Could have talked to Kenny for a while. Didn't really get too deep in his time over at Humphreys, but some amazing tales in that book. I kind of teased this one story about James Brown. I'll tell it quickly here. That uh, when Kenny was working over at Humphreys, he booked James Brown. And part of the Humphreys deal, you get booked to play the stage, but you also get a room at the hotel adjacent to the venue, the Half Moon or whatever it's called. Apparently, James Brown, after checking in, requested to be moved to a different room that had hardwood or solid floors because his room had carpeting. So Kenny's like, what's up with that? Went down to the room. This is in the book. And James had a problem because he was afraid he was getting some electrical currents off the carpet and it was going to mess with his hair. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Thanks to our sponsors, Oscars Mexican Seafood. Freshandfitmeals.com. And, and uh, yeah, until next time.